you know, we're in a series we've called Gender Revealed, where we're talking about gender and sexuality and diving into the confusion that is our culture, right? And um, the questions that have come um, from every angle, really, about whether, you know, gender is even a thing, and if so, who defines it, and who can change it, and move in and out of it, and all kinds of, of things. And so we've talked, uh, I think, for eight, nine weeks now about what God's design is for our gender and sexuality, that he did make us male and female, and it is for his glory, and it is for our good. And so I won't review everything, but that is, is the context, of, and we've looked at biblical masculinity, biblical femininity, and how that gets broken, and how Jesus restores it. We've, we've talked about uh, the beauty of marriage, and we've talked about the uh, sufficiency of Christ in singleness uh, that speaks to these issues of gender and sexuality. And so as we come to the end, we're wrapping up this series uh, today. As we come to the end of the series, we want to talk about, okay, so that's all well and good, right? Like hopefully there's a, a, at least a little bit more clarity about what God meant when he made us male and female, right? And what that looks like to live that out in the church. And, and hopefully we've, we've got some stuff to work on as men and women and, and some things and some clarity and encouragement, right? But now what, is that, what does that mean when the church, right, Defined by, by God's standards when we encounter the world. How do we respond? What is, what is our posture? What is our response whenever we step into a world that is full of confusion and full of legislation and full of conversation about these issues? And where God's word uh, increasingly gets viewed as not only traditional and, and perhaps you know, out of date, but, but increasingly as bigotry and hate, you know, all of those things get conflated with the view of Christianity in a lot of modern conversations. And I'm not saying that we do that, but I'm saying that that happens. And so what do we do? How do we respond? And so uh, it's what I want to uh, spend today talking about. I want to begin um, to help frame our time. I want to begin with a story of, of a woman. Um, several years ago, uh, there was a woman named Rosaria Butterfield, and she was a professor at Syracuse University. And she is a bright, scholarly woman who was living uh, as a lesbian and had most or all of her life. Um, and she wrote an article. Um, she was, was very much offended by, somehow, uh, the, the Promise Keepers movement. Some of you remember that. If you don't, it's totally okay. But this movement of Christian men. And, and so she, somehow she's offended by that. She's writing this article against patriarchy and all the, the you know, kind of traditional biblical um, Family unit and you know masculinity, femininity stood against, and she's writing against that. She's writing for um, gay and lesbian rights, and, and it's very much this posture of I need, we need to dethrone this idea of Christian patriarchy and and enter into a new age of sexual um, enlightenment and empowerment, right? And so she attacks the patriarchy. She had up uh, write the a new policy for for same sex. Uh, couples and um, within the university, so she's very much in that world. And one day, an elder from a uh, small Presbyterian church there near the campus brought the article, the the uh, the, doc, the the publishment that she had wrote, and laid it on the pastor's desk and said, "We need to do something about this. This woman needs to be stopped." And the pastor named Ken Smith said okay, maybe me and my wife can have her over for dinner. I don't think that was quite the response that that elder was hoping for. But as she recounts in her book, which is on your app, 
this weekend as a recommended resource. She recounts the story of beginning to engage with Pastor Ken Smith. She tells the story of someone who led with love, opened up his home, and just had conversations with her. Not one conversation and then, and then presenting the gospel and, and hope, you know, and it's one and done. Okay, you're going to do this or not. No, many conversations, much of which was not about Christianity or especially not about her sexuality, but just rather about life and about her and her family. And over months, not just a couple meetings, but over months that turned into years, she began to be influenced by this man, by his faith. And then as she's reading the Bible, and there's, there's a lot within that. I don't have time to unpack all her story. I would encourage you to read it, though. Uh, but as she's studying the Bible for herself for a research project, God begins to do a work in her heart, which leads to her being converted. Um, and, and now she's a pastor's wife, and she speaks on these topics, and she's very helpful uh, in, in regards to how do we approach people that are living in the LGBTQ community as Christians in a way that will be honoring to Christ and loving to them. She's really helpful. So I would encourage you to lean into her uh, for more resources, but I want to share that story because I think all of us, we've, got the, we've talked about you know, God's design for gender and sexuality. Now we have to talk about what does that look like when we encounter those that are living in that community. And when we come to that place where that pressure is put on us, where we have to, to kind of choose, whether that's from a person or from a law or from whatever, we, we feel, here's what the world tells us, that we have two options. The world tells us we have two options, that we're either going to choose when it comes to sexuality and the revolution that is and the LGBTQ and, and other letter community, when it comes to that, you've got two options. You're either going to choose to uh, affirm their life, right, or you're going to choose to alienate them. Aliena- alienation or affirmation, those are the two options that most of us are familiar with, and really our culture tells us we've got to choose one or the other, and that's not just one side of the culture, right? You've got the conservative side saying that, you've got the liberal side saying that, and everybody kind of puts those options, and what are you going to do? How are you going to choose. And this creates this, this pivotal, this turning point for many when it comes to the Christian faith, where this is the issue. When we lived in St. Louis, uh, this was very much the issue that when we talked to people about Christ, that they wanted to know about our church. Do you believe that homosexuality is wrong? And if we said yes, then they would say, there's no way I can get on a board with a God like that. And they would Shut down the conversation. And so this becomes this, this uh, fork in the road for many people who, in our, like in our area, are raised in church, right, or, and, and have this, this background, and, and they have to choose. Either they've met some people from that community, right, that are uh, homosexuals or bisexual, whatever, right, and they've met some people, and they've, they've built a friendship with them. And so whenever it comes to having to choose, well, do I say that they're wrong? They, they, they don't see how God could could possibly condemn their lifestyle and say that that's, that's wrong. So they reject the faith altogether, or at least orthodox versions of the faith, and they, they walk into some different lifestyle and maybe ride off the gospel altogether. Or, or on the other side of that, we're, we have people who are raised in church and, and, and know that God's word on sexuality and gender and those types of things is is what we should submit to, right? It's the standard. And so we know we can't compromise on that, so when we're forced to this decision of alienation or affirmation, we know we can't compromise on that, despite whether we know some of those people or not. And so we, by default, choose alienation. And, and that seems to be where we have to 
park camps, and that be, seems to be where this conversation goes, where we, we, we as Christians, we want to know about what does God's word says. Yeah, that's right. God says that's wrong. And so we huddle, we invite people further, further and back into this camp or this fort, this fortified world of Christian subculture where we're just going to lob grenades over the fence and tell the, the culture how they're wrong, right? And invo- invite people in. If you agree like us, you think like us, you live like us, you can come in and, and this will be the safe zone where, where, where God's presence is. And, and, and we're scared of the world out there. And it becomes an us versus them, Right? And then our children are raised in it, and they meet somebody from the outside world, and, they, and they're like, well, I, I don't believe, I don't, that's not what I see in the Bible, so I'm going to go outside and reject it altogether. And it creates this um, divergence of, of paths where we have to choose. And what I believe is that both of those things are actually wrong, and that the church has done a great disservice to the world by not teaching the way of Jesus, which is, in most cases, when it comes to these pivotal points, a third way. That the gospel does not submit to either one of those paradigms that our culture is so familiar with. The gospel does not lead us to affirmation or alienation of alternative lifestyles. Instead, the gospel is the gospel, and it creates a new way forward for us in life. One that owns the fact that, yes, the world is broken. Amen? And the people that populate it are broken. And that's why Jesus had to come. And it says, John 3.16, it's followed by John 3.17, that I've not come to, into the world to condemn it, but to, right, but to bring hope, to bring safety, like to bring grace, like to enter in and extend salvation into the world. And when we fail to apply that to conversations like this, we perpetuate this divide of sides and, you know, alienation, affirmation in our culture. So I, I think that that's, in fact, what, what causes us to slip into this us versus them mentality, and I think that that's exactly what Jesus is, is uh, modeling against in the, in the Gospels, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But I, I think uh, we, we shift into this, this and, and this conversation becomes this us versus them, and we, we have to choose, like, we, we become like the talking heads on our TVs where we choose points, we choose uh, stances, and we choose, uh, we talk about legislation, and all of that leads to this us versus them thing that dehumanizes the whole conversation where we're having this conversation totally void of human contact and personal relationship. And I think that's what leads to cultures like what Jesus entered into with the Pharisees and religious oppression and stiff-arming of those who aren't like us. And this divide of those that God wants to save grows further and further away from the ones that have the knowledge of how God saves. So, Jesus wants us to move beyond that and into what I would describe as a third way. Right? A gospel way. And I think that that involves, first and foremost, humanizing this issue, which is what we see demonstrated by Pastor Ken Smith in the story that I shared earlier. Instead of taking a hard stance and writing an article in rebuttal to uh, Mrs. Butterfield and, and, and rallying his church against her, what did he do? He invited her over for dinner. And I believe that posture should inform all of us as we go forward. Now, we'll get into, this is a nuanced conversation to be sure, and I cannot 
unpack all of the ways in which we are called to interact in one sermon or even in one sermon series. That's why we're, we're trying to push to you other resources for you to spend time studying and developing yourself. So please, on the app under this weekend, there are um, resources we'd recommend. I, I encourage you to dive deeper because, like I said, we can't cover all this. But I think that that point, humanizing the conversation, is one that we need to lean into. And I think what um, frames up what Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians. So if you put it away, open back up or you know, fire up your app, however you want to do it. I want your eyes on Scripture so you know that I'm not making this stuff up. And we're going to walk through this, these couple passages together and see what the Lord would do uh, in our own midst as we talk about how we respond to the confusion in our culture. So in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. But listen, he says, but not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to leave the world. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexually immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviled, drunk, or swindler. So, First thing we need to understand is that passages like this, which are known in the LGBT community as the clobber passages. I don't know if you know this. There are people that live that lifestyle that still want to follow Jesus. And so they have to do something with passages like this. And then people who know that that's wrong, they do something with passages like this. And they say, look at this, look at this, look at this. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And, and so it's become known as the clobber passages, ones like this that mention homosexuality, that, that we stand on and say, you're wrong. And that they have, have, have come to say, hey, but what about the rest of Scripture? And, and there's this argument, and I'm not saying they're right. I'm saying the Bible is right. But I'm saying it's been misused and not articulated well because we need to understand who this book, who this text, who this passage is written to. Paul says it right here. He says, I wrote to you, and this is the first Corinthians, this is a church that is gathered in the city of Corinth, and he's talking to a church. And he says, I wrote to you earlier not to associate with those that are sexually immoral. And he says, Listen, I wasn't meaning those in the world. Because if I said that, that would be a foolish command, because then you'd have to leave the world, right? Paul is saying, Listen, you need to hear what. Hear what I'm saying and don't hear what I'm not saying. And this is, this is important for us in this conversation. He, this, this, this text is not for us to take out into the world and use as a club and tell everybody how they're wrong. This passage isn't written to the world. It's written to the church. And that's important for us to realize first and foremost. We have to understand that what Paul is saying is he's saying, listen, I don't expect the world to submit to the scripture. That's the whole stinking point. The world's in rebellion to God. Right? So I don't, Paul says, I don't put this out there and expecting everybody in the world to submit to it all of a sudden. No, no, no. He said, I'm writing to you, church. This is your instruction of how you should live, how you should treat one another. And yeah, we'll talk about how you should view the world. But listen, how Christians should interact with the world, right? Those outside of the, the covenant community of God is very well laid out for us in the gospel accounts and books like Luke and Acts. Okay, we spent the better part of last year in the book of Luke. And if you have forgotten, go back and reread it. Jesus sets the president very early on and continues it ad nauseum of how he's going to interact and call his followers to interact with the world. And, and what is it? Look how you're wrong. How dare you? You're going to go to... No, no, no. What, what does he do? He humanizes people, right? He, he sees the people behind the sin. 
And, and it freaks the religious people out. This is what leads to uh, moments like whenever the, the prostitute comes into this religious gathering where Jesus is at a Pharisee's table and she comes in and she begins to weep and she begins to wash Jesus' feet and dry it with her hair and it's this scandalous scene and everybody's looking. I mean, their jaws are just dropped and everybody's looking and then they say, well, this man can't be a prophet because if he knew, if he was a prophet, he would know who she was and if he knew who she was, he would not tolerate her touching him. And Jesus turns it around and he says, If you had any idea, like, this is my paraphrase, but he said, if you knew the heart of God, you would be learning from her. This is, Jesus blows everybody's paradigm in the story we love of the woman caught in adultery, right? Whenever Jesus flips the script on her accusers and says, and reminds them of their own guilt and says, go ahead, if you're without sin, you cast the first stone, right? And they all leave, and then Jesus looks at the woman and says, hey, where are your accusers? She says, they're gone, they've not condemned me, and he said, neither do I. Right? And on and on and on. We can go with the story of the woman at the well who, who, who had no right to speak to a man, let alone a Jewish man, and there's racism there. There's, there's a sinful past. She's been with five men. Like, she's got all kinds of reputation just oozing out of her story, and yet Jesus speaks to her, has a conversation with her, dignifies her, and gives her new life. So he's saying Jesus isn't concerned about their sin. He just calls No, no, no. Every time Jesus follows that up with, hey, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Right? Absolutely, Jesus is concerned about sin, and he's going to address that in each of those situations. But it comes after first extending love and gospel grace to them, humanizing them, that then he's able to speak and say, hey, you can follow me now. And that means to deny yourself. Right, So Jesus sets this precedent of how we are to treat the world. That's already established. So when Paul's writing to the church, he's not talking about that anymore. He's saying, listen, I'm not talking about how you treat those out there in the world. See Luke and Acts for that, right? Go back to that. What we are talking about in 1 Corinthians is what is not established is how God's covenant people, redeemed and bought by the blood of Jesus, how they live in and amongst themselves and how they act to the world. That's what we're talking about. And so Paul says, listen, before you start worrying about the world and judging them and making all these claims against them, he says, you need to turn your eyes back inward and worry about yourself. He starts out chapter 5 by saying, listen, and Paul's angry. He says, listen, there is a type of sexual immorality allowed in your church that is not even allowed in the pagan world. They're disgusted by it. The world who says anything goes says, nah, man, what's going on in that church? They crossed some lines. Paul says, you need to worry about yourselves and how you're acting. Turn, turn your judgment back inward, and we'll keep our love and our grace focused outward. You need to turn your judgment back inward. What Paul is saying, this is the, the illustration of, of Jesus saying, hey, don't be worried about somebody else's speck when you've got a giant log in your own eye, right? See, in the world, God's, he says, the world, God's going to judge the world. He already has. It's broken. We know that. We don't expect them to submit to God's word. But you? You were bought with a price. You were redeemed. And I'm not saying that you earn your salvation, but I'm saying that as a result of our salvation, Paul says, what, what do we mean? Okay, so we got grace now. Do we just keep sinning so that grace can abound all the more? Is that the posture? Well, Jesus has saved us, so sin doesn't matter anymore. We'll just do it as much as we want. We ask for forgiveness. Paul says, by no means, absolutely not. That our grace extended to us by our Savior is actually what motivates us to pursue holiness and purity within the church. So he's, Paul's saying, listen, we, we flip this all the time. What we want to do as Christians, we want to look at the world and judge them, right? We want to say, oh, them. 
We, we cast our judgment, and it's, it's them. The, 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 what's wrong with the world is them. And if they, they would get their act together, right, then this world would get back on track. Well, Paul and say, and really, Paul is not new to this. This is what the prophets did all throughout the Old Testament. God says, hey, no worry about the world. They're already broken and busted. We know that. I called you out from among the world, and I'm talking to you. He says, church, you worry about you first and foremost, and you don't tolerate sin within the church and then you might have some credibility to be the salt and light and witness to the world. Because what we do as Christians, we want to judge the world and then give everybody a pass in here. Judge the world, tolerate it in here. We want to pick our sins that are more offensive to us or less natural to us, right? And, and, and we want to highlight them as the issue. But it, here within the church, I mean, we give grace. Right? I mean, yeah, I know we're overeating. I know we're, you know, we're lusting. I know we're, we're doing all these things. There's greed. There's, there's thievery. You know, and we're talking about not just stealing stuff, but, I mean, you're stealing you know, time from your employer at work when you're on Facebook. Like, we can just apply all of those things. Paul's saying, yeah, yeah, there's all kinds of sins within the world. I get that. I'm telling you to worry about them within here. And what Paul says is, who I'm telling you not to associate with is the, the person who claims the name of Jesus. That's what he says. It says the one, um, this is verse 11, I believe, uh, the one who bears the name of brother, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolatry or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, not, and this is not like a pass fail, like you come in, you get grace, you screw up again, we're kicking you out. No, he's saying the people who claim the name of Jesus but insist on continuing to live in a sinful lifestyle that say, I, I'm not sorry, I don't believe it's wrong. And they don't repent. They don't submit to Jesus. They don't submit to the counsel and the love of the church to walk them out of that sin. If they're just saying, no, I'm good. I'm not going to repent. I'm not even sorry. Then Paul says, you've got to lift your affirmation of them even being Christians because they're not acting like Christians. Because to be a Christian, you've got to say Jesus is Lord. Right? It's not just Jesus saved me, but Jesus, you're my Lord. And if Jesus is my Lord, Jesus gets to tell me what to do. And if you're not concerned about what Jesus has told you to do, Paul says, you need to get out of the, like, we're not going to call you a part of the church. Now, I can't get into all of what that looks like in church discipline, but what Paul is saying here is you need to be concerned about sin within the church because if you're just making enemies out there and talking about them, and meanwhile inside, your whole lives are busted and divorce is just as high here as it is in the world, and people are caught up in all kinds of sexual sin inside the church, then he says, then what good have we done? What good have we done? What a shame it would be if we spent our years arguing talking points like the talking heads on our screen. We've got heated debates and harsh social media posts attacking our opponents, and we're pouring all kinds of energy into that. We spend ourselves on these legislative acts all the while. What a shame it would be as all the while we're doing that. People, right? Actual people. You don't think they're in South Illinois? You're not out enough. Actual people are right under our noses, living as our neighbors, watching us seeing us alienate further and further, distancing ourselves from the actual humanity behind the issue. What a shame it would be if we made progress in legislation while our neighbors who are seeking life in this world, right, pursuing their own ways. There's a video on your app I encourage you to watch. Where it talks about, like, as a church, we need to be ready for the refugees of the sexual revolution. Because the sexual revolution 
is going to promise fulfillment. It's going to promise life. But we know that it's all going to lead to emptiness. Solomon outlines this. Fill in the blank. Whatever you think it is, success, money, relationships, we know that if you're pursuing life in that, you're going to find emptiness. It's like digging an empty, a well that never strikes water. And so we need to be ready for them whenever they've uh, gone that way and, and found out that, man, there's not life there. We need to be a church that says, yeah, but let me show you where there is life. Right? Let me show you where there is life. What a shame it would be as if all the while we're working on legislation and, and our, our Facebook posts and watching the new, and all of these things and people are dying and going to hell right underneath us. What a shame it would be if we fought for the curriculum in our schools to remain traditional regarding sexuality, yet all the while we failed to demonstrate the beauty of the gospel to our own kids. What if we win the battle of curriculum, but we lose the war for our kids' souls because we never walked with them in the footsteps of Jesus? We never modeled humility and repentance to them because we were busy fighting a battle that Jesus hasn't called us to fight. I'm going to get to that. I'm not saying we don't engage socially. Don't don't get me wrong. I'm going to get to that. I'm saying our primary focus should be on discipling those within our midst so that they can go out and be the light and the salt in a broken and busted and deteriorating world. And if we fail to do that, then Christian culture is going to erode even faster than it has. What a shame it would be if we win the battle in curriculum but lose the war for our kids' souls. Because they're going to come to a place, right, where they're going to have to choose. What do I do with these people who seem like good people, but they have this orientation sexually, and, and my church tells me it's wrong, so I've got to alienate them or affirm them. So that means I'm either going to go with them and leave my church, right, or I'm going to stay with my church and reject them. Our kids are going to be presented with that same dilemma. You understand that, right? And just because we've won some battles legislation-wise and curriculum-wise doesn't automatically mean that that's going to transfer into gospel life for our kids. We st- like, we're amongst the minority in history that has even had a Christian culture to mourn the loss of. You understand that? Like We are the minority in history that has even had a predominantly Christian culture in America that we're now mourning the loss of. Most, like the people Paul's writing to in 1 Corinthians, that's not a Christian culture. It's a pagan culture. The world around them is saying all kinds of things about marriage, sexuality, and what is right and who to worship. And it is the the church's responsibility and the moms and dads in the church, in their home's responsibility to disciple their kids. Our greatest aim can't be that we get curriculum fixed back in our school and then we just get to, you know, dust our hands and let the school do it. We're never made, we're never called to abdicate or outsource our discipleship to the school or even to our youth groups. We talk about that all the time. Like you get, you send them to Alex for one, like an hour and a half, two hours a week and expect the discipleship to just take root. No, no, no. You're with them like hundreds of hours a week and it's on you. So if we're not worried about those things within the church, within our home, discipling our kids, walking after Jesus, modeling repentance, modeling love to the world, filling our homes with love and grace like Jesus did and truth, right? We want to lead with truth and leave out the love and grace a lot of times. If we're not doing that, then, then what, have we, what have we accomplished? So am I saying that we shouldn't be concerned about what happens in regards to legislation and education and so on? No, not at all. Absolutely, God's people should be the ones pursuing office, speaking truth, proclaiming the way forward for our world. Absolutely. I I wish it was God's people pursuing office. Like, 
more, like if that's you, more and more of you, like we should do that. Absolutely influence and lead where we can. But what I'm saying is don't be surprised when the world acts like the world. Don't be surprised when the world acts like the world. We don't expect them to submit to the authority of Scripture. We do expect God's people to. This is why the famous passage, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people, right, will humble themselves, bow down and pray, call upon my name, if my people will do that, then I'll hear from heaven and I'll heal their land. What does he say? If those American people, those, those, that, those on the left, those on the right, if those, those you know, liberal, whatever, fill in the blank. It doesn't say if those people would repent. Like, no, no, he says, hey, church, you, you humble yourself. You bow down, pray, call on the name of the Lord, and I might do some amazing works in our day. That's what I want to see. I want to see people that are empowered and called by the Lord to live out the way of Jesus, the way he lived in the Gospels, into the world. When we just focus on those other things, we fail to live out the second most important commandment, which is love your neighbor. We, we, we cannot pick one or the other. Alienation, like we have to follow Jesus as he loves those that are broken and lost and yet calls them, invites them into life through the gospel. We get this flip so often. We tolerate sin in and amongst our church, our people, and we judge the world. Paul says flip it. This should be our primary focus. Look at, look at the logs within our own eyes. And listen, when we do that, when we focus on purity within the church, we're calling one another to follow Jesus. We're not giving each other passes. We're encouraging each other on and on in the faith. Then we have a different posture, credibility, and perspective as we engage the world. And that's what I want to talk about with the last few verses here. When we embody this, when we are humble self-effacing, bowed-down, humble people before our God, that gives us a different witness as we do engage with the world. I think there's three implications we're going to talk about by looking at chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. And here's what Paul would remind us of. He says in in, uh, chapter 6, 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Again, he's talking about the people within the church. He's saying, you're just living unrighteously? That's not going to live to the kingdom of God like blowing up in your life. He's not talking about getting to heaven. He's talking about like the kingdom come and your, God's will be done on your life and seeing power manifest and, and living in Jesus. He said it's not going to happen when you're living unrighteously, right? And that's rampant all throughout the world. That's not the way to life, right? Don't be deceived, he says. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, there's some context clues into how to step out of that being a clobber passage right in there. Because does it just say, hey, those homosexuals, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Is that what it says? It says that. It says some other things too, though, doesn't it? That's what, like, we as Christians, we want to make this its own thing, right? Like, we've got this tree of sins and these branches on it that we're, we're kind of okay with, right? Like, we're, we're used to this. We're used to sexual sin. We're used to adultery. We're used to overeating. We're used to, you know, stealing some time here. We're used to being angry. We're used to those types of things, and they're over here. But this sin, this is a really bad one, and it's got to be treated separately, and the people who struggle with this one, they're, they're, they're them, Right? Paul doesn't do that. He groups it all together. He says, this sin that we're so appalled by, yes, listen, and I get it. It is 
like there's a certain visceral reaction to, that many of, many of us have to this, to homosexuality. I get that, right? Because it is certainly not traditional, and it is unnatural for what most, like, I get that. I want to I just own that. But what that doesn't do is make it its own category. Paul says, no, no, no. It belongs right back over here. So what we have to understand first and foremost is that these people that are struggling with this, they're actual people, and their greatest sin is their sin of unbelief, not their sin of homosexuality. And that, we're going to see, falls true of all of us as well. So the first thing is just to understand, this is on a list of sins, not the only sin. We, our culture wants to isolate that and make that the point. Paul does not do that. The scripture does not do that. And here's the, here's the key. So here's the verse we cannot miss. So he says, all of these things, all of these people will not inherit the kingdom of God because they're drunkards, because they're adulterers, they're homosexuals, they're thieves, they're liars, drunkards, greedy, all of these things. And then he verse says in verse 11, don't miss this, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. Listen, that's the biggest point that we, that's a biggie on the eye chart that we cannot miss in this conversation is that it can't be us versus them because there's no us. When we look at who's good and who's bad in the world, it's Jesus in the good category and everybody else in the bad one. And that's it. There's no qualifiers. There's no fine print. It's it. We're all over there. Jesus stands alone as the one who is good. The Bible says there's no one good, no one who's right, no one who seeks the way of God. We've all rebelled. We've all walked away from God. We've all exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship the creation instead of the creator. And that has played out in different ways for all of us. And some of us, that's, you know, sexual sin that played out in a heterosexual context. And others, it's in a homosexual context. Some of us, it's in the way we handle food or drink. Some of us, it's in the way we handle approval from people. And we can go on and on and on. But the point is, we've all walked away from God into lostness. So the first thing is when we understand that, there's implications of, of being a gospel-driven people as we, as we kind of wrap up. The first thing is that when we understand that, we will have empathy and humility as we approach those in the world. And it doesn't really matter what sin we're talking about, but particularly when we're talking about sexual sin, we won't put them over here in this category of, oh, they're, they're freaks or they're, they're, you know, other. No, man, they're sinners, Right? Think about it. When the gospel was presented to you, I hope that it wasn't presented in a way of, hey, you got sin in your life, and you clean that up, and then you can come to Jesus. If it was, then I want to apologize on behalf of whoever said that to you, because it's not the gospel, right? When we present the gospel to a lost person, we say, hey, listen, we get it. You're broken. You don't believe me? Read the Ten Commandments. It won't take long before you got to go, yep, I'm guilty, Right? But the good news is that God has made a way for sinners like you and me to be saved, to have new life. Such were some of you. That's the first thing. We'll have empathy and humility toward those we are witnessing to. The second thing uh, we see in uh, verse 11 there of chapter 6, but you were washed and you were sanctified. We're familiar with the washing part that we've been forgiven. We're going to go to heaven and all, we, all of that. But I talk often like we got we to know that God's not done with us after we're forgiven. He calls us to be sanctified and made into the image of God, right? And, and this is important because if we leave that step out, we become righteous, holier-than-thou religious people. 
who look down on the rest of the world. But when we continually submit ourselves to Jesus in a sanctifying process, what that means is, is that we're living out what Jesus says. You gotta, hey, you wanna follow me? Pick up your cross, deny yourself, and, and we can do some work. So what I'm saying is, when we are familiar with our own sin and our own need to battle against it, now we have some credibility and perhaps some respect amongst those that we're talking about when we say, hey, Jesus loves you and he wants to save you. Am I going to have to give up my lifestyle? Yeah, but he's worth it. And if we say that and they've not seen us struggle with anything, they've not seen us have to give up anything, then they don't think we relate, right? They don't, they don't, they don't think we get it. But when we become a people who are acutely aware of our own sin, like the, the more mature we become in Christ, the more humble we become amongst men. Paul is like rock star Christian, right? Wrote, uh, the biggest majority of the New Testament, he wrote it. What does he say? As he gets older and older, he realizes what? I'm the chief among sinners. When we lean in to what the Lord has for us, we become acutely aware of our own sin. And when we practice self-denial, what I mean is when we start following Jesus, he's going to require some stuff of us, right? He's going to require that we get, I was talking about it earlier, like, sin, there's a reason we do it. Like, it's appealing. There's a draw there. Like, we all have things in our life that are really difficult to overcome and really difficult to let go of. Sometimes it's as obvious as sexual sin or an addiction. Other times it's really well hidden, and it's just about pride and gossip and fill in the blank, right? But regardless, Jesus doesn't give him a pass on, on any of it. He calls us to give it to him not just because he's looking to just crank down the screws tighter and tighter on us. No, he says, I want you to have life. And if you're going to have life, you've got to give up that sin. Because that sin leads to death, but I'm leading to life. Come follow me. And in order to get to life, we've got to say no. We've got to deny ourselves. And when people, listen, when we live that out, that's why we're so big on community groups here. That's why we say we can't just come in and put on our smiles and leave. We will miss the gospel and our lives will be a wreck. But when we're honest and when we live in community with one another, when we confess our sins to one another, when we say, listen, I'm not okay. I need you to pray for me. I need you to speak truth to me. When we model that, when we live that out, we deny ourselves. We, we live in a community where we're struggling with with our own sin in order to get more and more of Jesus. When we do that, now all of a sudden when we come to the person who's of a different sexual orientation and we, we invite them to consider Jesus, we're able to say, listen, we shouldn't, don't ever start, just quick pro tip, don't start with their homosexuality. Jesus, again, God didn't start with your sin. All right, we get that straightened out and then we can talk about, you know, coming inside. No, no, no. You're lost. You're a sinner. Your main sin is unbelief. You believe in Jesus? It'll change everything. And when we start to have conversations with people, and undoubtedly they're going to bring it up. They're going to say, well, what do, you, what do you believe about, you know, homosexuality? And listen, you can unapologetically say, I don't believe it's the way God's designed us, and yeah, it is a sin. But listen, it's a sin like the ones that I've struggled with. And the point is Jesus came to save us from sin. So you can look at that person and say, listen, I can relate. 
I have to give up things that I love. I have to deny myself in order to follow Jesus. And though I can't relate to you totally because, listen, sexual identity is very much core to that person. It's very much, it feels like we're, that God's asking them to be something that they're not. It's very much tied to their identity, to their sexual orientation, to their life's happiness. And, and so we could say, listen, I don't relate to you fully. I, I, I've not been there. I don't, I don't get that fully. But what I can tell you is that Jesus is worth it. That Jesus is worth it, that, that you get to deny yourself and run to him, and he will give you life. And I don't know what that looks like if he changes your desires and gives you a marriage. I don't know if he calls you to live a celibate life. But what I can tell you is that he's worth it. Because as I've given up this in my life and I've struggled against this in my life, what I've found is he gives me more and more and more of himself, and it is more and more and more life. So now all of a sudden we have a credibility with him when it comes to speaking to denying ourselves that should be characteristic of a gospel-shaped people. And that brings us to our last implication of, of turning our eyes and inward as a church and, and our judgment inward, not our eyes, but our judgment inward and keeping our the love and grace and invitation in outward. When we do that, the gospel will become the conversation from beginning to end. It's about the gospel. It's not about their sexual orientation. It's not about this law, about that law. How could you? None of that. No, no, no. It's about the gospel. Because again, as Rosario Butterfield explains the way that Ken Smith treated her is that not only did he not talk about her sins, plural, for a long time, when he did, he didn't, talk, he didn't isolate that and say, this is, this is the issue we've got to talk about. No. He understood that her greatest sin, like his, like mine, like yours, is unbelief in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. When we start there, we hold Jesus up as who he is, we can rest assured that he'll take care of the details. Right? When we present Jesus as the Savior, we start there. And that doesn't mean their, their desires might not go away immediately. They're going to have to wrestle with, walk through that. But listen, that's the point. And just like with any other sin, there's space for that. There's space for struggle. There's space for growth within the church. If there's space for someone to struggle as they recover from an addiction to alcohol or as they struggle from a sexual sin or recover from adultery within a marriage or struggle to overcome their excessive gossip, if there's space for that within the church, there has to be space for the sexually broken to run toward, lean into Jesus. Because Jesus says, yeah, I know the world's broken. That's why I've come. And I've come that you may have life. Have it abundantly. So yeah, I've got, Jesus has a way to live. It's never to take from us. It's never to steal from us. It's never to say no just because. It's always to lead us to life. That defines us as a people. And now all of a sudden, we're defined differently as we go into the world. Does that make some sense? When the gospel has shaped our hearts and wrecked us as an individual and as a church, when we're struggling, when we understand that it's not us versus them, that it's us, and Jesus has called us out, right? And that's the only way that we have hope. We're sinners sanctified by Jesus alone, not by our own works, not because we got it figured out. We're not, we don't sit back and wait on the world to go. No, 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 we say, Jesus gave me this, and he's called me to tell you the same message so that you can experience it too. When we do that, and then when we, when we live out repentance of sin and sanctification in community where we're confessing to one another and struggling toward holiness and righteousness with one another, all of a sudden we have a credibility to go along with our empathy and our humility 
And then we understand that the gospel is first and foremost in these conversations and not sexual orientation, not these things. We treat them like anybody, any other sinner. Now we can be the salt and light that Jesus has called us to be in this broken and confused world. We are justified by Christ alone. That's how the passage ends. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. For some of us, that's just what we need to be reminded of today. Right? Sometimes Christian culture can make us start feeling good about our obedience, start making us feel better than others. We need to be reminded of the gospel. You're justified by Jesus and Jesus alone, by his work. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful that you don't leave us to ourselves to figure this out, but you've given us your word. Would you make it clear where I wasn't? Would you bring hope where I didn't? And would you just stand at the center of this room and overwhelm us with your glory and grace? Would you do your work in Jesus' name? Amen.